Hello, I'm Julie Swenson, Managing Director of Forward Theatre Company in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm Mike Fisher, Milwaukee-based theatre writer and dramaturg. I'm Jen Opoff-Gray, Founder and Artistic Director of Forward Theatre Company. And this is Theatre Forward, a twice-monthly conversation about theatre from a local, regional, and national perspective. From Madison to Manhattan, we're excited to share insight into our own company while exploring issues surrounding theater in the Midwest and around the country. And welcome to episode 17 of Theater Forward. Hello. Good to be here. So this week's conversation is about audience expectations for the plays that they come to see in the theater. And this came out of some conversations we were having with you, Mike. You know, Julie and I spend a lot of time in the theater, but it is overwhelmingly time spent at our own theater. We do get out and about to see our colleagues work, but we spend a lot of nights here at Forward Theater. And Julie, you spent many years in the audience with Renaissance Theater Works in Milwaukee. Yes. Mike, you have a slightly different perspective because you really do visit companies all over the state, all over the region, and really all over the country. And you were mentioning observing some shifts in what audience expectations seem to be. And so we thought you could kick us off by sharing a couple of those and, and we'll kind of talk about our experience with that. Well, you know, one of the ones that I think a lot of folks are commenting on, and I would want to attribute to shorter attention spans and to the social media issues that go with that. Gee, where have you heard that from me before? <laughs> um, has to do with shorter plays. Yeah. I mean, I think that you're seeing far fewer uh, plays even with an intermission, it's almost unheard of anymore to see a play um, with 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 three acts. And you know, honestly, I miss that. I mean, at the risk of sounding like a, a crusty old man, I just got back from the Shaw Festival where uh -huh. I saw my first ever live. Uh, you know, six and a half hour with lunch break, Man and Superman. And honestly, I'm with Tim Carroll, the artistic director there. I think this is right up there with Box Mass and B minor or with the best works of Shakespeare. It is one of the great human achievements of all time. And the idea that it's not the sort of thing that would be seen anymore, or heaven forbid that we could even stomach our way through, you know, a three and a half hour O'Neill play, um, you know, or even a crimes of the heart because it has two intermissions makes me sad. I, I just think we're losing something with these with these shorter works, but it's what people want. Yeah. And I think that uh, it's what they want, because right now theater is feeling crammed into the day. Mm -hmm. It's not it's not the um, the event of the night. You know, here's what I'm going to do is I'm going to see this show. Now it's I'm going to eat. I'm going to see a show that I've got. um some drinks and things with my friends and we're being, we're being crammed in. Um, I think about, there's a story, um, in Milwaukee of, um, Sarah Bernhardt coming in and doing a play in French for six hours mm. and the Pabst was sold out and, that's but that's what people that was their night's event and they had nothing else to do but go and see her. Well, and I have to say, though, I'm not 100 percent convinced what's the chicken and what's the egg in this situation, because when we're picking our seasons at forward and we are really exclusively looking at pretty new work, you know, almost everything we produce is less than five years old and sometimes it's only, you know, two or three years old or world premiere even. Um and we are not factoring in the length of the play in choosing what we want to do. I mean, if it was a, a six hour epic, we would have to have a conversation of whether we thought our audience would show up for that. Mm -hmm. But we aren't going, oh, this play doesn't have an intermission. We, we should do it versus this one is two and a half hours long. We shouldn't do it. That doesn't factor into our decision making at all. But I would argue that some of the absolute best new work being written now is shorter and doesn't have an intermission. And partly I know that's because a lot of playwrights 
are really embracing the idea that they don't have to interrupt their storytelling in the middle. Now, by necessity, it means that it has to be, you know, no one's going to sit for two and a half hours, three hours without an intermission, although they do it for movies. So, <laughs> um, but I, I do think that the playwrights are really glomming onto this idea that they don't have to interrupt the, the emotional journey they're taking the audience on. So our current season of four shows, all four of those plays range from about a hundred, about an hour 20 to maybe an hour 40. None of them have an intermission. And we didn't even realize that that was going to be the case till after we'd locked the entire season. Um, so I do think that a lot of it is coming from playwrights embracing this opportunity to tell an uninterrupted story. And then you do start to, I would not personally want to program a play that was an hour and 50 minutes and not give my audience a bathroom break in the middle of it. Although, you know, we talked recently about, I went to see what the constitution means to me. And that was almost two hours straight through. And I barely moved in my seat. I was so riveted, but I, I totally understand that that is, um, a special case. So, so yeah, I'm not a hundred percent sure that it's entirely shorter plays by audience demand versus really great plays are being written to be shorter. But, but I do have to say, I agree with you, chicken or egg, our, our, um, audience is receptive to these plays and that's what playwrights are writing or playwrights are writing this. And, but I do hear on a regular basis, we have a sign in the lobby that says no intermission and people go, Oh yeah, great. Mm -hmm. Some of them, but some of them are like, what do you mean? No intermission. <laughs> I mean, it really is. And that tends to be from the older audience members, uh -huh. I think. Right. Um, but it is, I do hear both. I do hear both, but I do think there is, you're right, Mike, the, the shorter attention span, the busier lives um, mm -hmm. is part of it. You know, on the other hand, we had a recent season at, at Forward where, you know, a, a fantastic season all around where two of the plays, actually this was different seasons, but two recent plays that we've done, you know, are Annie Baker's The Flick, which people were walking out of in New York because they thought it was too long. And it was a, you know, fantastic production here. You know, and Ann Washburn's, you know, Mr. Burns, post-electric play, which it did have three acts. It you sure know, did. Yay, yay. Um, and again, you know, a, a wonderful play. I mean, it maybe appeals in a different way to a different um, section of the audience, but both of those plays are ones where I think I would say looking in from the outside, Jen, it must've felt for you as an artistic director, like you were taking a little bit of a risk, like you were stretching people, which gets to a whole nother issue on audience expectations to what a degree or sense do you feel it's your responsibility to you know, either just reflect as best you understand it, where an audience quote unquote is. And conversely, where are you feeling that it's your responsibility or charge as an artistic director? And Julie, this goes for you too, as managing director, to take an audience forward, to challenge them to a new place. You do all plays challenge people into a new place. We're sunk, right? I mean, you know, it'll be too hard from a market standpoint. But how do you balance those two things? That's the word, balance. I, I, it really is, I think, that simple. For us, at least, the way we look at our, our seasons, it is about... Um, both of those things, I don't think that there's anything wrong or um, copping out about doing plays that meet an audience where they are. Meeting them where they are means having a really robust conversation about their lives. And I don't think there's anything, um, you know, easy or, 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 you know, chickening out about doing that. But we also see theater as an art form that that can push a conversation into into new places. And so for us, it's it's really about um, 
seasons that that have both of those things. Um, you know, you, you brought up the season in which we did both the flick and um, Mr. Burns, a post-electric play. And yes, certainly I felt both of those were risky shows for us to do, but the length of them actually had nothing to do with them feeling like a risk. It was much more the the, the challenges of the of the format and of the style of storytelling that felt really um, maybe a little more envelope pushing for our audience. But yeah, balance. And we will frequently um, when our advisory company discusses plays, uh, we, we have an entire category into which plays get slotted where we say, we love this play. This is beautiful. It will be impactful. The audience will respond to it. It might feel a little safe and safe does not have to be a bad word. But what we do is we we put that in a in a bucket of those safe plays. And then when we're building our season and say, oh, here's the big risk taking play we want to do, then we can say, great, well, which one of these, um, you know, less risky. And again, less risky is not a bad thing, but this comforting meet the audience where they are plays that become a beautiful balance that allow us to feel like we can maybe push a little harder with another script. And I think that's the key. And I would say you're in my in my opinion, the best way to choose a play is to have the people around the decision makers with a recognition of who the audience is and what plays they like yeah. and what speaks to them. Because I do think we're a little doomed if we spend a lot of time um, asking the question of what's the play the audience wants? What? Nobody you know what knows. I mean? Yeah. No one knows. <laughs> and you're often, um, you know, we know this, that yeah. some plays speak, you know, to some section of the audience. But polls lie. As we've learned <laughs> in the last exactly. few years. <laughs> exactly. That it has to come. It has to come from the decision makers out right. and not audience in, and in terms of decision making. And that's why I love the fact that we have an advisory company, because, mm-hmm. we, you know, we've got. 15, 16 people providing an opinion on a play who all have different tastes, but are part of this community. And so they right. can can weigh in. And when you collectively look at that, you can get a sense of, okay, some of the audience are going to love this and some of them, it's not going to be their cup of tea. And you get that. Yeah. I think that the, the collective that we have, I think makes all the difference yeah. I, yeah, that, that we can say, yes, are they, are they reflecting our audience and all parts of it? Yes, we do have, um, we have age and we have, um, the diversity of our audience in that advisory company. Right. And I think those decisions are, are better because of it. Right. What are some of the other expectations that you've been noticing, Mike? Uh, you know, I think, uh, there's a, uh, real, a privileging of, of laughter and of comedy. I mean, people, uh, they, they want, um, to, to, to Julie's point, um, in terms of theater being a night out insofar as people think about that, they want to have a good time. They don't want to go watch the Iceman come with, and it's not just cause it's long. <laughs> they want to laugh and they want a happy ending. Um, and my concern with that, um, is, is twofold. I mean, first I think it affects the way in which shows are done. I mean, it's the end of the summer. I'm coming off a ton of, of Shakespeare. And I'm just really sad at even the major festivals um, at the way in which Shakespeare is being amped up, at the way I think shows in general are being amped up um, because, you know, people don't trust the work. They don't trust that the humor will come through on its own. I mean, I've seen three As You Like It's in the last couple of years, one at Stratford, one at California Shakes, and one at APT. By far, the best of those three was James Bonin's uh, As You Like It at APT. Not a perfect production, but the clearest and most honest about the laughter and the humor that is in that script without shamelessly playing 
uh, for laughs in it. And he trusted the text. And because of that, the, the, the humor that is baked into Shakespeare's script is already there. Let Shakespeare do the work uh, on something like that. And I just hate, hate, hate productions that paint the lipstick on the Mona Lisa. So that's the first problem. Um, and the second problem is it, it's, it's affecting the works that are actually getting chosen um, so that more serious plays uh, more earnest plays, maybe is the right word, don't seem to me to have the same chance. There's always one or maybe two in a season, but if there's more than that, companies are apologizing for not having enough humor in their year. And maybe it's because the day after Benjamin Moser's new biography of the great Susan Sontag, um, whom I dearly miss, and who was never going to be accused of playing for fun. This was a person who took seriousness and earnestness to the T, to the fault, to a point where she could be criticized for it, but at least she had the courage of her convictions to say, you know what? If we're living in dark times, the answer isn't to sort of run from them into some sort of shallow escapism. And I think theater ought to reflect that. And I'm not sure it's always doing that because people are afraid to program serious work. Now, here's here's the irony of that. We can't find a good comedy to save our lives. People aren't writing them right now. And and so it's interesting that you would say that that's what audiences want. And, and I would argue that that's not what playwrights are writing. Playwrights are not writing out and out comedies anymore. There are certainly uh, plays um, that have humor in them. But um, I think. What has happened to Neil Simon? That has become in in sort of theatrical parlance um, a bad word. Do you know what I mean that you're that you're doing something um, below grade to do a Neil Simon? And we don't have the next generation of that. So it's I, so it's interesting that you would say that's what people want. And my argument to you is. Do they want that because it's not what they're seeing? They're seeing it on TV. And they're I think seeing that's it on the best, TV the and they're not seeing writing. comedy, right. true comedy on stage much anymore. Here, right. Here's where I come down on this, which is uh, listening to the two of you talk. It's really interesting because I would argue that if there is a secret sauce to what really defines a forward theater play, it's that we do not do plays that are straight up comedies and we don't do plays that are straight up tragedies. I always want a play that's finding the humor in dark material or finding the sort of dark human experience inside of a, a funny story. That's what our audience really keeps coming back for, I believe. And maybe, you know, bringing up TV is an interesting point because I do think for the most part, television does tend to fall into an either or category. You know, you get your flea bags and things that are this brilliant bridging of the two. <laughs> We're and bowing down. I yes, know. indeed. <laughs> but maybe that's why that has become such a critical favorite, because it's to my mind, that's one of the rare television shows that is successfully a dramedy or whatever you, you mm -hmm. want to call it. But I would argue that almost every play we do at Forward is in that middle zone where you're seeing something that will you will laugh and you will cry. You will have a profound thought and you will giggle. Um, that's what I like. Cause I don't think I don't particularly love going to see O'Neill because I, I personally don't think that an endless four hour trudge through tragedy feels reflective of how we live our lives, you know? And I also don't want to go see a, a flat out farce for hours and hours that doesn't have any sort of substantive recognizable human behavior underneath it. I, I like living in the middle and I think it's something theater does really, really well that I, I think is less common. I mean, there's some good films. Um, you think of like a lady bird or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but that, 
I don't know. I think that's where theater lives for me. And so it, I feel like we can sort of meet that expectation, but I will to come back to your original premise, Mike, I do hear all the time from audience members. I want a good comedy. And I keep mm-hmm. saying to them, me too, <laughs> because if I can find right. those good comedies that do have believable human emotions and behavior underneath them, I'll do them. That is my cup of tea. <laughs> well, and I realize that our cup of tea as a company producing newer work isn't to produce older plays, but God bless Julie for mentioning Neil Simon, who I think is <laughs> so unfairly maligned. Agreed. Uh, he is a fantastic comic writer and very, very deep and very, very human in his best plays. Um, and that just gets lost precisely because I think of this issue we're talking about, of a tendency to amp up. Um you're right about Forward's work. I mean, and this isn't a shameless plug. By the time this thing drops, the production will be closed. But Mary Jane is a great, great play for many reasons. The one that's on Forward stage right now, one of them is its ability to balance pathos with some really painfully funny moments. And right. the, the humor's even richer because it's set within the context of a play that also has its dark side. Yeah. Agreed. Can I give a positive one since I don't yes, want to be I don't please. want to be the sort of you know the the the, the Mr. <laughs> Naysayer here. One thing I'm really excited about right now that I'm seeing is a greater tendency to um see or want to see uh uh immersive theater. Um so that somebody who is younger may not be interested in going to see Macbeth, certainly seeing it twice, but they'll go see Sleep No More five times right. um, in New York. It's been a huge hit. You know, Lynn Nottage has done such amazing things with her work. I'm staging a sort of a a, a, a play called This is Reading, which is a takeoff of sweat in an abandoned train station mm-hmm. um, in Reading or with her, by the way, meet Vera Stark, creating a website where you have two characters that are sort of blogging um, on the, uh, you know, on, on the Internet about their experiences in relation to the play, which is pushing technology in all kinds of neat and fascinating ways. And I think that is that blurring of lines between theater as being something where you may not even break the fourth wall the one where you're breaking all four walls um, and really involving the audience in the production, a little bit like uh, Every Brilliant Thing, which we'll be doing later this year at Forward. That's a cool, cool development to me in what we're seeing now on stage. Yeah, I love it as an audience member. Um, and then as a producer that is somewhat tied to doing things in our theater, sometimes it means that there's a play that we'll look at and say, ah, you know, uh, for example, we looked at Natasha Pierre and The Great Comet. And, and thought, Love would it. this be, I know, would this be a good musical for forward? You know, we did Fun Home. Mm-hmm. This seems something that is sort of uh, similarly thoughtful and also entertaining, good scale. But it, we just felt that we would lose so much by not being able to really authentically um, represent that more immersive feeling that we figured we should we should let another company do this. We should you know hope that this happens someplace else nearby because it didn't feel like a good fit for a traditional space. But as an audience member, I'm yeah, I, I love to see those kinds of um, boundary breaking productions and we'll happen. And I travel. do think we're going to see a lot more of that. I think Sleep No More has taken off and, and there will be ripple effects throughout this country. People are, I mean, Chicago is already figuring out how to replicate that. And I, we're going to see more of it. I don't know what that looks like then for traditional theater, if that's really what interests 
a generation of people. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, Man and Superman is not about me being able to have a say. It's about Shaw having all the say for six hours. <laughs> right. And, you know, I, there's something about that I really love. But we are in a different different moment right now. And it is sort of cool in our lives and certainly in theater to see the ramifications of the blurring of, of the lines between the experts on the one hand and everybody else. And even though I admit and have admitted on this podcast that makes me sad in some ways, it's also got really exciting offshoots because when you involve more voices, you come up with more ways and ideas about how things can be done. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I sort of to your point, Julie, I don't think that... Um, the, the blossoming of more sort of mold breaking site specific kinds of theater. I don't think that's going to make more traditional theater spaces go away. Um, there's still going to be those kinds of stories being told, but I do think you may see more and more companies doing the kind of work we do at forward, like having the talk back after every performance, mm-hmm. that is a way of inviting in the voices of our audience to be a part of the evening's experience and really um, making it not just a, We tell the story, you listen to it, we all go home. Theater, I think, is so magical because we are all living, breathing human bodies in a space together. And I do think that with this more technological era that we're in, more and more audiences who do come to theater come because they want that sense of being in a room with other living, breathing humans and having some way to make to to allow those groups to interact with each other is a huge value add and as a reason for people to put the phone down and 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 come and step into the theater. And so sometimes it's going to be through something really asleep no more, a Natasha Pierre. But I think sometimes it could just be from a, a, a play with a really robust talk back afterwards where it really is a conversation between the audience um, and the artists together and, and any of those different opportunities. And maybe it's a community engagement project. Maybe it's an art exhibit that's out in the lobby that's been created by community members. I mean, there's there's a million ways right. um, to extend that experience and make it feel more personal and, and engaging beyond the storytelling. But I, I, I do think that we will see more and more of that. And I think it's a really good thing. It's a great argument for the importance of theater in a technological age. Well, and, and it brings us all the way back in a way to, to to the Greeks, right? So it's like if we want to square this circle, it's we're in a technological moment now. But what are you doing in a three-day festival? In addition to seeing yourself embodied and represented by a chorus on stage, you're voting at the end of it on the best <laughs> place. It is clearly a communitarian moment um, in a way that, you know, all of a sudden doesn't feel so old anymore. And maybe the stuff we're looking at now is older than we think it is. Well, Mike, I mean, talk about putting a button on our conversation. That was perfect. So we're going to say that that's all All for this episode of Theater Forward, a conversation about theater in Wisconsin, the Midwest, and America. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jen Uphoff-Gray. I'm Julie Swenson. Bula Bula. I'm Mike Fisher. Our (laughs) podcast is produced by Scott Hayden, and you can follow us or share your thoughts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Forward Theater, as always with an E-R. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you might tune in and be sure to leave a review. We're really grateful to have you listening and we will be back soon for another Theater Forward conversation. 